Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Ryan, and again, glad to be with you. Glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, just a couple of other things before we begin. Uh, I just want to remind those uh, who um, are standing. February 5th, we'll have our new member standing, which is always an exciting time. And I just remind those of that to say, if you're here, I wanted to make this announcement at the beginning of the service, and you're interested in knowing more about Wallace or maybe even joining our, our, our local body, I uh, would love to talk with you about that uh, at any time. So um, just wanted to make that announcement and invite you to that if that's something you're interested in. Um, at this time, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. We're back in Ephesians after uh, beginning this book uh, last fall and then taking a break for Advent. And I'm excited to get back into it with you all. We're, we are in chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading verses 7 all the way to 16. If you are using the, the Pew Bible that's actually hidden underneath the seat in front of you, it's page 977. Before I read this, a little bit of a reminder about the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters... Um, are really Paul sharing his treasure with us, and that is Jesus and his gospel. And for three chapters, as it's broken up in our English Bibles, you have Paul laboring on what we call the indicatives, which are truths. And he's been telling the church in Ephesus, but also other churches, um, that this is what's true about you for those who believe in Jesus Christ. This is what he has done for you, um, this is who you belong to. Uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins without hope, but he has made you alive, okay? Again, indicative, indicative, and indicative. Here's what's true. Here's what's true. Here's what's true. And it's these last three chapters that we are in now where he finally gives imperatives, which is, this is what you should do then, okay? And that's actually what we call the grammar of the gospel. You be before you do, Right? You are a son or daughter of God uh, by his grace alone, and then you do things for him. Right? To rearrange that would be to do things for God in order to be loved by him, in order to become his son and his daughter. And so even in this book, the way that Paul lays it out, uh, its grammar, the way it's broken up, uh, just instills the gospel message to us. What God by his grace has done to those who didn't deserve it, who were dead in their trespasses and sins, but have now been made alive in Christ. And so for the rest of the book, we will uncover um, the imperatives and the things that Paul is urging the church to do in light of this news. So with that, let me read for us, beginning in chapter 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we we ask now that you would graciously give us your spirit as you promised to do, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we could see and hear things otherwise we could not. Pray that you would limit our distractions at this time, that you would quiet our hearts and our minds to focus on your word, what you say to us. And I pray that to that end, that you would use me in a way that, that, that makes me small, but makes you big, and that you are the point here as we look at your scripture and as we try to apply it to our lives. Would you do this for your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This section is a little bit challenging because as we began in chapter 4, there is sort of this turn where he urges all of the church to walk worthy in a manner of their calling. But in in verse 7, there's this transition where he goes to talking to all of us, to all of a sudden talking about the individual parts. And so while unity is a part of this, uh, he takes this sort of angle that is a little jarring at first, and I'm going to be honest, it's, it's, there's a lot in here that's just confusing, um, and so hopefully we'll parse some of that out. But there is this transition where he begins to talk about the individual as it pertains to the whole in unity, and the majority of this is going towards, for Paul, that uh, we as a church must grow up in how we do that. Uh, there's an aspect of parenting that catches, caught me by surprise anyway, uh, when your kids or if you're around kids, you know, when they turn that age four to five, they come out of this baby, infant, toddler stage, and they sort of begin this stage where you realize that old baby phase is gone. Hopefully you realize that in some senses, and you know that from now on sets the trajectory for their, their moving towards adulthood. And going from this stage to the next to the next. And somewhere in this phase, something changes in the way that you view them, right? It's almost like they are no longer babies, but are finally beginning to become the people that God is creating them to be in all their personality and development, right? And the worst thing in this moment that could happen is that they wouldn't grow up. Um, One of my friends tells a story that sort of summarizes this, at least for me. He was raking leaves in his backyard one fall when his six-year-old came out to help. And uh, he he puts help in quotation marks because according to him, that was was the last thing that was happening, really, was his six-year-old helping. Sure, for about five minutes, um, he uh, and his son with his toy rake was mimicking daddy, trying to put leaves into the pile, and it was really cute. But soon after that, 
his son went running around the backyard, kicking the leaf piles, creating more work for his dad. And, uh, you know, in, in one sense, that's a lovely scene. But this was the commentary that my friend said about that as he shared. He didn't say this to his son, but he said, don't you, don't you love prefacing a statement like that? Um, he said, you know, this is cute. It's cute. It was cute to have him out here. But in this moment, he goes, I didn't need my son to play daddy's little helper. What I needed for him was to grow up so that he could just help me with the leaves. It's an honest request. It's an honest request. And then really in the end, it's the right one uh, for, as, as, you know, for the aim that he has for his son and what he, what he aspires him to be and where he's headed Another uh, example of this, one dad talked about the sadness of watching his son leave home for college, and he, he remarked uh, this, these words have always stayed with me. He it said, it's painful to see him leave, but not as painful as it would be to see him stay. And those who are laughing know what his point is. As a parent, right, our job is to raise up our kids. It's, to, it's, it's for them to be adults, to see them grow up, to grow into the person that God has called them to be. In other words, if his son was still living with them 20, 30 years down the road, yes, he would be with them. But there would be reason for tears of a different kind. Somewhere in those two stories houses the essence of Paul's turn here, his exhortation to the Ephesians in this text essentially saying, here's who you are, here's who you belong to. That's what he's been saying. You're safe. You are, you are the sons and daughters of the living God because of, of grace, because of Jesus Christ. But you mustn't stay that way as children, as these infants, in a sense. In fact, you won't stay this way, Paul says. You must grow up and you will because that is the work of Christ in his church who, as Paul tells us, is his body. And so he's going to go on to tell us that, that, that while all of us are called to grow up as individuals, we all play a role in, our, in all of ours growing up and we all play a role in maturing the body and having it function as it properly should. And this is the trajectory that he goes and this is, this is, this is where I want to spend our time with this idea of what it means to grow up and what that's about. And so with our time, I, I want to look at three things, and I'm just overwhelmed by the content in this passage. So, you know, we really could do a series on this text alone. But I, I want us to see from the text as we get into it how, or, or sorry, first that we must grow up from Paul, that this is his urging. we got to see how we grow up from Paul, though that's extremely important, what he gives to the Ephesians for how this happens. Um, and then we need to see why, why we grow up. So, how, how, or so we must grow up, how we grow up, and then why we grow up are the three things that I want us to get out of this passage this morning. So the first one, we must grow up. It is helpful to begin with the end in mind in this section. And the end in mind for Paul is that we, as, as, as his body, would grow up into the fullness, which is Christ, which is the head of his body. Look there at verses 13 to 16 really quickly. Until we said, until he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a run-on sentence if there ever was one. And he continues, but we are to grow up in every way into him who is the what? The head into Christ. 
from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, which is going to be his major aim here. The purpose of growing up is that we are growing up both by love but in love as we reflect Christ to each other in the world. But beginning in chapter 4, as we said earlier, to walk worthy of this, man, of this calling that we have, as we reflect that in this unity of this testimony of one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, this is everything he just said beforehand, he now gets to the part where he says, that's great, you are now connected to me, there's this union, right? But you've got to catch up. You've got to grow into uh, me, as he is saying here. The body must catch up with its head. When a baby is born, one of the most notable traits is that the head, typically, of the baby is larger than any part of the body. And there's good reason for that, and we've got nurses and doctors who can explain that if that's confusing. But noticeably, that's, that's what happens. It's obvious. Um, and what happens over the next six months to a year, though, is that, that the body, what catches up with it, it literally grows to fit its own head. Early on, babies can't even hold their heads up. But in time, the two fit together as one. There's a lot of good reason to think that this is actually what Paul is thinking about as he thinks about Christ and the church. The leading metaphor as he continues in this book. That this image is described what's happening as, as these new converts and uh, folks have come from life, or death to life that now they find this union with Christ and now there's this sense in which they literally are, are filling out the role or calling that has already been given to them as Christ redeemed, which is to grow into uh, the head, which is Christ himself. When I was a kid, I loved putting on my dad's clothes and walking around the house in them. Right, the shoes were always twice the size of my feet. The pants always uh, completely hid my feet, and his shirt dragged the ground as I walked. I didn't quite fit those clothes yet, but it, as a son, right, one day I would. So it was with the Ephesians as the body of Christ, and so it is with us. As we think about Paul's call for us to grow up. But you'll notice something important, how the body grows up here in verse 16, and it says that all parts have to be working properly together in order to make the body grow. In other words, this isn't about individuals at this point and their personal growth, although that's important. It's about the health of the whole system. And when that system is working properly, Paul says the whole body grows up. This is how it's going to happen, essentially, is what Paul is saying. And, and so while, while God is working this through his people, he's urging them to, to maintain this as well. And so the first thing that he says to the Ephesians is, essentially, this isn't just about you. And I think that's a good message for us today as well as, as Westerners who traffic in individualism. Right? This isn't just about your own spiritual, individual spiritual journey, although that is important. Don't hear me not say that. What's important to note as Paul begins is that this is about seeing yourself as one, which is hard for us to do, as belonging to one body connected together, that belong to Christ and to one another. And that for you to grow and for me to grow is for all of us to grow together. 
This means that everyone connected together in this body needs each other to grow up. Our bodies need a variety of healthy parts in order to function properly, right? It's no good to have a healthy heart uh, but a failing liver. It's no good to have working legs but no lungs to breathe. Our bodies need a variety of healthy working parts working together in order to not just function properly but to grow up and to mature. And this is the picture that Paul is leading with. This is where he's, this is his big picture, what he's starting with here. So growing up or maturity for Paul, again, isn't a rogue idea. It's something that happens in and through the entire body of believers. And so for Paul, if Christians are going to grow up or to mature into the fullness of Christ, which is their calling, this can, this can only actually happen in community with one another and as well as we'll see within the church. And so I stopped there for a second just to make what might be an obvious point um, to slow down and just maybe this isn't as obvious, especially in, again, as I said, the culture that we traffic in. That as we think about church membership, and maybe there's more reason than not as to why I made that announcement again at the beginning of, before I read God's word, that, that we actually understand that church membership isn't just about, you know, shopping for a place that, um, you know, maybe fits in with, um, you know, the, the full picture of what I want my life to be like, or I want my kids, you know, really to get some moral teaching, that's a good idea. What Paul is saying is that what's, and this is, it's, again, it's hard to sort of crystallize, but what's already true of you, the way this is going to come about is by being in community with one another. I can't stress that enough. And so to say is our first point, like we have to grow up This doesn't mean that we just sort of begin thinking about, okay, what books do I need to read now? That the actual means of which you're going to grow up are sitting to your left and your right. I'm sorry for that. Thanks for laughing. That's what he's saying. All these other things are great. Podcasting, great. Reading books, great. Personal devotional time, great as we'll see. But the way you're going to grow up, how you're going to grow up, as we'll see in a second, the means to that is here. And so before we move on, if you are here and you have even been burned by the church, right, which all of us, if you, if you get close enough to the church, you just will. Because it's made of people. Or maybe you know someone who has or maybe you didn't grow up in the church and you only sort of have this cultural idea of what that is. I get that. Please let Paul's words to us here reshape and reframe the church for you in this text. Certainly for the rest of this book, that growing up, right, this one thing that is crucial for us as Christians, that it happens in and among and through the body of believers that he gives us. And where Paul is going to go, we're going to head back to verse 7 here in a second. He's going to say, Christ is over that process, which means he's aware of who he's given you to help grow up. And that is a hard thing to reconcile. Let's move there next, how we grow up. This is, this is just, again, from the text, we must grow up. This is not an, this is not an idea, a suggestion. This is Paul urging and, and telling the Ephesians that this is what must happen. And now he's going to get to how this happens. So starting with the end in mind, we come back to the beginning. How has God designed and decreed you and I to grow up, at least according to this passage? It is by a diversity of gifts. Jamie alluded to it earlier. 
is by a diversity of gifts, right? We might think of the phrase today, teamwork makes the dream work. That's not too far off here. So if we go back to verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now, Paul goes on from from addressing, again, all of us being united together in verses 1 to 6, defined by this oneness, to now talking about how we are different and how this different aspect of us is intentional and how it actually moves towards our unity because it is what grows us up. Verse 7 says that all of us have been given a measure of grace that is Christ's gift to his people. And it's helpful here to distinguish about what Paul is talking about. John Stott calls this saving grace versus service grace when he talks about these gifts. All of us in this room, as we've been listening to Paul say, have been giving, all been given the same measure of saving grace. But what Paul just said there in verse 7 is that not all of us has been given the same service grace, which is to say that you have been given different gifts and I have been giving different gifts. That's his point. But we have received different gifts by his grace or different measures of service grace from Jesus. And it's these gifts that he has given to all of us, to the church, that grows us up. Look at verse 8 to 10 then. Paul ties this idea of gift giving into Psalm 68, which we read earlier, and the generosity of God to give gifts to his people from the spoils of victory. As Sinclair Ferguson writes, in the ancient world, a conquering general might be given a triumph in honor of his victories. This would be a parade for the town as the king lined up his captives and brought them into the city. Upon returning and resting in his court, the spoils of victory would be dispersed as gifts to his people. Psalm 68 describes God in such terms, and Paul actually wants to connect Jesus to this psalm, a mighty warrior as uh, Ferguson continues even, who has conquered all of his enemies, returning in triumph, he leads his captives behind him. The psalm was a call for God to rescue his people and to vindicate them again as he had in the past. So Paul in verses 8 to 10 there is saying that Jesus in his ascension and exaltation is the fulfillment of this psalm. And as the fulfillment upon ascending, course, after descending in his incarnation, like a king coming back from victory, has dispersed gifts to his people. That's the picture here. Except the spoil is not gold or whatever else you might think of. It's the captives whom he has rescued from sin and death or redeemed sinners. And these captives, what he disperses as gifts, as a variety of gifts for the sake of what growing up his whole body. Verse 11, and he gave some to be. Okay, we're about to get into this section here. This is not an exhaustive list of of, of gifts that he's given to the church, nor is this to be taken uh, too dogmatically as this sort of just this doctrine that this is it or, or the only means, as we'll see here in a second. He gave some to be, he says, apostles and prophets, and some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. He's what, in one sense, he's what, giving the, uh, the illustration of these gifts now in the form of those who would come and proclaim his word. These gifts that Paul talks about 
we can say are primarily word-based, but it's not exhaustive. It's not all of them. So just to unpack that, first to say that, that he gave the apostles and the prophets is to say what he's already said from back in chapter 2 concerning the foundation of the church. That is, the first layer of God building his church is put upon these unique offices of apostles and prophets. From here, we see the sort of the next generation of that in the evangelists. And who were those? We hear of two evangelists in the New Testament, Timothy and Philip. These were not part of the inner circle of the apostolic age or the, the apostles that, that we think of starting the church. They were sort of that next generation. And that then finally gives away to pastors and teachers or shepherds and elders, a gift of the church that would be more permanent and ongoing. And so then Paul then goes and takes here and he says, but that's not the purpose here, right? So he gives these gifts <laughs> for the growing up of the church. But look at verse 12. These gifts then are there to what? Equip the saints for ministry or service would be another definition of that word for building up the body. In other words, the way that God has designed this church to grow up is by giving gifts to the church in the form of leaders that will, in this case, use their giftedness that God has given them uh, for the rest of the body, to equip the rest of the body for service, for building up the body of Christ. Some of the reason why we started service in the beginning of uh, you know, the past two weeks as well. Much to say about the implications of this, but, but, but suffice it to say that we want to be an equipping, a reaching and equipping body. And that is to say that, that, you know, all of the ministry and all of the work is not to be done by the pastor or the officers. Right? Hopefully at this point we're recognizing that God has dispersed gifts to everybody. And everybody has a role in building up the body. So as we reach, right, we are all reaching. We are all in a sense equipping, all in our different ways for the sake of the church. Bach notes this, he says, God makes the church work in part by giving gifted people to it to equip the rest of the body for ministry. Now, as I said to our elders and deacons at our last joint meeting, those are our officers in our church, I said, you are God's gift to the church, you are not God's gift to the church. Maybe I need to say that again. You're God's gift to the church, but you're not God's gift to the church. And I, I intentionally want to say that because I think it's hard for us to even think about the idea that somehow, whether I'm a pastor or an elder or a deacon in this church and the responsibilities that we're giving, that somehow, you know, we think that we, we're supposed to be up here. And I hope that as you get to know your officers, you recognize that there's a sense of humility behind that office and, and even just a, sort of a, a trembling that I don't deserve this. And I want to draw, especially our officers, but all of our body back to what this actually is. It's God's generosity to his body, to his church. In, in, in the, the weird, sort of confusing ways, I never set out to be a pastor, that he decides fit that I'm going to drop Ryan in the middle of Maryland here for a season to help shepherd my church. Paul is saying that officers, leadership, gifted men and women are gifts to the church that are given by Christ to equip the rest of the body for ministry and service so that the body can mature and grow up. This means then, for example, that God does not give leaders to the church as the only ones who do ministry and service, as we said earlier. They are given to equip the body for the work and execution of ministry and service because this is how the body will become healthy and grow. 
This word for equip was used in the medical world for restoring or setting broken bones. Some of you might know that. And so in this way, by God's grace, he, he gives to his church gifted leaders to set or restore the spiritual lives of those in the church so that they can set and restore, right, or be a part of the process anyway, the spiritual lives of those in the church. So I don't not say this. I hope you're getting the point that you are incredibly important, indispensable in some ways, to the body of Christ. And I'll make it more personal. You're indispensable to me. I'll be selfish about it. I can't grow without you. And the same is true for you and everybody else in this room. And so immediately we begin to see why we need each other to grow up. Because one, this gets a little more practical, everyone has been given gifts. That's what verse 7 is saying. Different measures of, of gifts for sure, but everyone's been given something. And we need a whole other sermon on like, how do we figure that out? What are my gifts? How do I know what those are? I've got a lot of hot takes on that. So come take me to coffee or lunch and I'll tell you about that. But two, we recognize that not all gifts are the same. This is important. That's part of Paul's lineage there of, 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 of not giving the exhaustive list, but there are, time, there are different gifts that he gives his people, different measures of grace, as he says. But then three, the body needs all the gifts to mature and grow up into the fullness of Christ, which means all gifts are important. Thus, everyone, everyone has a role to play in the building up of the body of Christ, not just the leaders, not just the officers, not just those who seem knowledgeable in the scriptures, but everyone needs everyone for this growing up. The importance of being you and, and the importance of being me is that God has given us both something that is different yet unique and vital for his church to grow. And this is how we grow up, through a diversity of gifts that are redeemed centers of Christ. This also means that if the parts of the body are not working together or are, in, you know, if you're thinking, you know what, the church doesn't really need me. I can just sit here, or there are, are you know, so many other more talented, gifted people than me. I don't really need to get involved. That that's sort of the conversation that goes on in your mind. You're actually at odds, if I could be so bold, with Scripture, and are at odds with how the whole system works and is designed to flourish. And so let me say these things, practically speaking, about our gifts and how we might I think about them as Christians since Jesus is the giver of these gifts. Let's start there. He's the giver of them. That means we don't hold uh, what we've been given over others. My gifts as a pastor are not held over your gifts as fill in the blank. And if there's ever an air of that when you meet with me, you know, don't hit me in the face, but like tell me you're about to. <laughs> right? I don't hold my gifts over yours. You don't hold them over mine. Jesus gives us our gifts. I am not more important than the economy of God. You are not more important than the economy of God, though we have different roles to play. So we do not hold or lower our giftedness over others. We actually are called to see each other as God's faithfulness to each other. It's one of the best parts about February 5th for members standing, right? It's actually a tangible picture of God's faithfulness to his body for this time and season. Okay, at the same time, right, we don't envy others' gifts either, right? We um, as we say in our household, you, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. 
It's easy to be a part of a church and look around and say, look, I wish I was more like so-and-so, or I wish I had or could do what so-and-so can or, or does. And it's, it's, it's great and it's fine to admire and sort of appreciate the way God has gifted others and to even encourage them in that. But we shouldn't envy that. To do so is to say to the gifter, you don't really know what you're doing. Lastly, everyone has been given gifts, but not all gifts are the same, yet no one person holds all the gifts. This is why growing up or maturity for Paul, it isn't a rogue idea. It's something that happens in and through the entire body of believers. Brian Chappell writes this in his commentary, despite these complex ideas or issues, right, the clear message is that Jesus has dominion over heaven and earth, and thus he has the authority to dispense gifts here as he wishes, to whom he wishes, and the, proper, and the proportion he wishes, and with the expectation that we will respect his authority and dispense his gifts among his people as he knows is best. To despise others' gifts is to disrespect Christ's authority. Well, there's so much more to be said about this, but this is how we grow up, through the gifts that God has given his church. But lastly, why? Why will this happen? Why will we grow up? And it's, it's one of these situations where the how is the why and the why is the how. How are we going to grow up? He's going to gift his church gifts for the equipping of the saints to do ministry and service to grow them up. Why is he going to do this? Because he's going to gift his church gifts. In other words, God is generous to his people and his victory over sin and death has decided implications for his church. And so Paul turns in verse 13 to say that God is doing X until we all attain X. If you look there in verse 13, coming off of 12, for the building up of the body of Christ, again, another run-on sentence, until, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That phrase is actually a little confusing. Aren't we already united? And this is why this, this break here in seven is striking. He's already said we're one and united, but now he's talking about until we attain to this oneness. Aren't we already united? Yes, we are, but this is what's important about Paul's, um, you know, his... Um, his urging the congregation here, there is a sense that this unity needs to be kept and attained. Right? Unity is a dynamic thing. It is not static. It must grow like a marriage, like a body. One of the ways this happens is through the shaping of the word in our life together which in this text is allowing the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God or the gospel of Christ, everything that Paul's been talking about for these first three chapters means for our, you know, for our growth, it means for us to, to be shaped by it. In other words, the gospel is not just the how, but it is the why of our maturing, of our growing up. The word will do the work. And so think about what we're doing right now. Right? Think about just putting a little more... Um, understanding into this idea of worship. As I say this, you know, I know I had to yank one of my daughters from a sleepover and that wasn't really fun because, you know, now they've got to be here. I get that, I get that. But what's happening here? 
all of us are exposing ourselves to the same sanctifying truth of Scripture as we hear the, the word exposited, exposited and preached, as we sing about it in, in our hymns and in our songs, and as we hear it in our readings and prayers. Now, imagine if we did that on a regular basis, I don't know, weekly even. Now imagine if we did that over many years. Imagine if we met with one another in some type of small group or talked about or shared the effects of this word ministry in our lives and prayed with and for one another. Imagine if we let others use their gifts to speak into our lives at times, allowing the whole body as best as we can in this local expression uh, to work together in this way. In other words, Paul's point is if we are all letting the Word of God into our lives and having its gospel shape us, it will unite us by producing in us the fruits of that gospel. Love, as he goes on to say, being the primary form of that. You see, you see now the, the, how this all works for him. Love is then what ends up building up. Love is then what unites. Love is what matures us and grows us up, right? But it's not just any kind of love. It's the love that we see in Christ. It's truth in love, as Paul shares. And we don't have time to, to dive into this, but this is actually, you know, it's not just saying that we are people who say truthful things to one another. It's actually truthing in love. It's action and how we live this out. But love without truth, as we know, isn't love, and truth without love is rarely heard or felt. So what love is Paul talking about here? Well, it's the love revealed in the knowledge of the Son of God that we are feeding on, shaped, being shaped by as we grow into the, the head that is Christ, as, we, we, as our body catches up. It is the knowledge of the Son of God is that gospel of love that if we return then to the beginning where we started, it's a love that what descended and ascended. It's a love that drew nearer and came down for us. It's a love that gave himself for the captives, his enemies, as it were, so that he could then take captive the captives, that's you and me, and turn them into redeemed agents of his body. You can't make that story up. And he didn't just give us, you know, as we think about him taking the captives, he didn't give us what we deserved as enemies, but he made us trophies of grace, gifts to proclaim and live out the very gospel for others that was so generously lived out and given for us. Okay, this is how, this is how we, these are the three things we talked about. We must grow up. I need to put that in the phrase of a question. How we grow up and why we grow up. Okay. All right, I want to I want to end here where we ended last fall because I think these are great things and there's so much more to talk about. I had a hard time this week because I couldn't figure out where to land. So maybe we can keep that conversation going in our coffee and one-on-ones and stuff because we there's so much more to talk about here, but here's the deal. Growing up, this wonderful idea of maturity, talking about gifts, right? All of that comes back to one thing, and that is what's your treasure? What is your treasure? As Jesus even tells us, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I I come back here where we left off because all this stuff is great, but none of it really matters if Jesus isn't your treasure. And that's, I'm gonna couch that here in a second about what I mean by that, but this is what has to be the primary thing that's shaping us. Is there anything other than Jesus and his gospel 
that is calling your heart, that is taking the primary role of shaping you. And one of the things that this means is that um, you know, while we come in here and sit and we have this regular time of, of worship and we are shaped by the gospel, right? Proximity doesn't always mean that it's your treasure. I like this story. I, I, I'll share it with you and I'll, I'll end here. Um, y'all are familiar with the uh, Antique Roadshow, I know. Um, and uh, there's this one episode that my friend talks about where this gentleman, it's back in 2001, he, um, he shows up with this, it's like this 1840s or 50s Navajo first edition blanket. And it was used uh, to wrap, it's what the, what the chief you know, wore. And if you watch the show, you know the whole point of the show is that people line up and they bring their junk in, hoping that it's worth a lot of money. Um, you know, grandma's spoon that, you know, she's kept in this vase for, you know, two centuries or something. And you're like, what is this thing worth? And you bring it in and he tells you, you know, it's five cents. There's no reason to hold on to it. You should throw it away now. <laughs> but in this one particular episode, this guy named Ted has this Navajo first edition blanket. He doesn't know what it is, though. And, you know, he's been standing in line. He's got this thing thrown over his shoulder. And when it finally comes time for him to display it, they've got it laid out there. And, and even before he gets up there, as you watch this, you can tell that the guy that's doing the whole show, right, he sees what, he sees, he sees Ted, I think that's his name, and he's, he knows what Ted has, like, essentially thrown over his shoulder or in a bag or something. And he is just getting, he's losing his breath. Because he knows what, what this guy has, but this guy has no idea what it is. So long story short, they put it up there, and they, they, they talk about what it is, and the guy just tells him, like, look, Ted, I, I don't know if you're a rich person or not, but, but you're, you're about to be. Because this is a first edition Navajo ute, and to find one in this condition, there's maybe one, two in, in the world possible, you know, existing. And he said, on a bad day, Ted, this will fetch, I think, $350,000, right? But on a good day, north of a million, and I think if the internet is correct, he went on and fetched $2 million. But here's the thing. This national treasure, for years, he said, you know, this thing's just been sitting over a chair in my living room for as long as I can remember. <laughs> he said this $2 million blanket, you know, the dog probably sat on it. The amount of times it probably fell onto the floor. The amount of times it probably just, you know, you just didn't even, you wondered if you should just give it away. My friend makes this comment about this part of the show. He says, look, this is, proximity to treasure doesn't mean it's treasure. And his point there is that we can be around treasure and not even know it, not even think of it as treasure. And that has a lot of implications for me, a lot of maybe more implications, some implications for you. Certainly as Christians, as we come in here day in and day out, longing to be shaped by the gospel, you know, we can be around a lot of Christian things, but is it our treasure and as such, is it the thing that we're allowing shape us the most and allowing others, right, who are being shaped by this shape us the most? For Paul, and there's, go back from the very beginning, there is no greater treasure than Jesus. There's no greater treasure than his gospel, the one who ascended but also descended. And where this lands for us this morning is that my aim for all of us as we jump back into Ephesians, but as Christians, that we would be a people in pursuit of that treasure together. I need you, you need me. We're all in different places, 
and what we think about Jesus. So this isn't a condemnation about you making something happen in your life. This is about a joint pursuit of what is true and what is real. And that is God's love for you in Jesus Christ. May that individual pursuit, right, be what unites all of us as we grow up together into the fullness of Christ of which we've been called. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it it is daunting to think about what growing up actually looks like. In some ways, uh, it's it's scary. Um, And so we need your your continued grace and mercy. But one one of the wonderful graces that you give us in this regard is each other. That this is something that we're not doing together or doing by ourselves, but that we're doing together as you call us, as your people, and you bring us into this fold united to you, as we all sit with the center display of your grace and mercy of Jesus to us, as that becomes our treasure, may that be the thing that not just unites us, but grows us up together as we are healed, as we mature in our faith, as we continue to let the gospel message wash over us and over us, Every day. Would you help us to see that connectedness? Would you help us to see each other in that way as you are showing us here in your word? And would you help us to see the power for that to be Jesus and his gospel and his grace to us as he has come to redeem us by giving himself for us? May that be our treasure, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.